Welcome to Educational Triage. This is a podcast by teachers, for teachers and others, in which we look at and discuss issues in alternative education. I'm Tony Hunt, and this week we are welcoming a very special guest. This week, we are so honored to have Jennifer Achari join us from Perth, Australia, where she is a deputy principal of an alternative education school. And she has a background of diverse educational experience working with people who come from culturally and linguistic diverse backgrounds, as well as being a doctoral student at the Queensland University of Technology under the mentorship of Dr. Judith Howard, who wrote the book that we refer to this week. And she also writes for Pew Revere Generals. She's at national and international conferences where she speaks. And she's also a sessional lecturer at Queensland University for undergrads. So I can't tell you how excited I am that we are joined with her today to talk about trauma-informed education. And here we are. And thank you, Jennifer, for joining us today on Educational Triage. We're just, I, I can't tell you how thrilled I am that you are here. Because you have, here. you have an incredible background of knowledge. You have the experience. And if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners exactly what it is that you do do with alternative education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I am a deputy principal at a care school here in Western Australia, Perth, Western Australia. A care school is a curriculum and re-engagement in education school. So it's alternative education. Um, I'm the head of campus at one of our smaller sites here in Perth. And I basically work with at-risk youth. And we have a variety of trainers and youth workers and psychologists who work with us and help the students that are impacted by complex trauma. And I'm also doing my doctorate, my PhD, in trauma-aware alternative education because I have a passion um, to put out some more research in this field because it's a growing field that people need to be aware of. Excellent. And you are the star protege of Dr. (laughs) Judith Howard. (laughs) Yes, she loves to uh, think that. Yes, it's very lovely. (laughs) (laughs) She says wonderful things. And Dr. Howard wrote the book, uh, Trauma-Aware Education, which is essential information and guidance for educators, education sites, and education systems. And that's through the University of Brisbane Press, correct? Um, Yes. Yes. So I am delighted and so excited that you're here today. And I'm hoping that you can take us through because trauma-aware education is really, I don't want to say it's a trend. I want to say that it's more of It's a a new field. Yeah. Yeah new field it's becoming people are becoming more aware and the more aware that people are the more that they're like wow we need to know more and more and more and more about this yeah exactly it's a hot topic right now it's a hot topic because people are understanding that it's important yeah exactly and especially since we came out of the pandemic and there was yeah a lot of people um are talking more about trauma and how that affected them etc so now so The SAMHSA, or the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which is part of the U.S. government, their definition of trauma is individual trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening, and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning 
and mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. Could you explain that just a little bit more for us, please? Yes. So trauma is your, uh, so basically trauma is an experience. So there's two different types of experiences of trauma, simple trauma and complex trauma. Now, simple trauma is when there has been a traumatic event. So a singular event. So sometimes this is called singular trauma as well, or type one trauma. It's when there's been an event. So for example, um, we could say that there's trauma from COVID. That was one event. The pandemic is an event, or there's been a flood or a bushfire, or even children can, can experience their parents' divorce as being traumatic. So that is an event. So when there's one event, that is um, simple trauma. That's what we call simple trauma. Now, when there's complex trauma, complex trauma is is multifaceted. There's, there's a variety of different traumas that kind of overlap on top of each other. These can be the adverse childhood experiences, intergenerational trauma, developmental trauma, all these different types of trauma that then overlap and have a variety of these different types of trauma that interconnect. Um, and a lot of the complex trauma that we do see in childhood. Um, and then the adverse childhood experiences study has given us a lot of information and that kind of put us on the path of this trauma aware education journey that we're on now. So, and just very briefly, cause I know we're going to go into it a little more in depth. How does yeah, so, trauma manifest itself? So, tra- so with students, so when students, basically it's the students understanding that they have this feeling uh, of so, so if they're not feeling safe, if they don't feel safe, then that's how their perceived understanding of trauma comes across. So they can have this perception that uh, something is traumatic without it necessarily being that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then how does trauma so tra- affect the brain? Mm. And then and if you can tell us in simple terms... So, because I know that it, yes. it, so tra- it tends to go with the frontal cortex. Hmm. So trauma affects, so basically trauma affects the brain at all the different levels. So if, if, if you're looking at developmental trauma, for example, so from zero to 12, we know that in early childhood education, this is a very, very important time, zero to five in a child's life. Developmental trauma happens from zero to 12 months. So that's really where the mirror neurons are acting up and, and, Babies and their caregivers need to have this connection. They need to have a connection and love and a back and forth um, type of connection, relationships and things like that. And then the understanding that if that's not there and they're not understanding that, that it's going to affect their brain and it affects their brain by um, having by, by understanding that they're unsafe. And so they're going to have these these attachments. So attachment theory comes into that where they're going to be anxious attached or avoidant attached or disorganized attachment. And disorganized attachment is a lot of what we see in complex trauma. So they're not actually having that attachment to their caregiver. They're not actually having that appropriate um, back and forth in that relationship. So they're experiencing this understanding of trauma. They're experiencing trauma in their brain in that they're not safe, they're not loved, they're not having this thing. So they're having, their brain is not actually building those connections those relational connections that are very important for a young child. Okay, so what happens instead? I mean, if they're so not they don't building build the those relational connections, connections what, what then their body doing? is constantly in a fear state, and so that this is where the fight, fight, freeze response comes in. So that with the polyvagal um, theory, is that 
basically you're in a in a state of being unsafe constantly. So if you're not building relational connections and you're not having that understanding that you are safe and you are loved and you are you are held and you have that attachment, you then go into uh, survival mode basically. So it's the fight, flight, freeze response then kicks in. And so you're constantly in either fight, flight, mm-hmm. or freeze. And so you are in this state of needing to keep yourself safe, needing to keep yourself uh, in survival mode. Okay. Okay. And this could this could also impact whether or not a student is actually able to yes, learn. Yes, yes, yes. So, so trauma right? affects everything. It affects your oral language. It affects your executive functioning. So it affects your memory. It affects all those different things. So if you're constantly in survival mode and you're thinking, I need to survive, you're not able to actually learn and you're not able to actually mm-hmm. focus on um, executive functioning, which is the memory, which is the learning, which is even language. Trauma can affect your ability to understand language. And so if you look at people's literacy um, scores and things like that, those can be greatly affected by trauma because you're not actually able to focus on the building blocks of language and literacy because your brain is stuck in, I need to keep myself safe. I need to understand who is safe in my world. And so you're constantly focused on this understanding of safety and your body is basically in a shutdown mode. So if you think about, you know, being attacked by a bear, if there's a big bear coming at you, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, oh my goodness, I need to like understand the functions of language. No, you're thinking, oh my God, I need to like run away or play dead. <laughs> That's just what you're thinking. So you're thinking, oh my God, right? So your brain just gets yes. into this thing of what do I do now? Either you're going to run or you're going to play dead. And those are your two options when you're, when you're with a bear. And so when students are constantly in this state mm-hmm. of survival, they're just, they're thinking that. They're thinking, what what am I doing? I'm doing this or that. They're not thinking of all the other stuff. So you really need to have this understanding of safety and love. And, and, and basically, if you don't have trauma, it actually helps you learn. If you have trauma, it, it impedes your learning. You don't, you're not going to learn in the same way that other students will. And so you're at a big disadvantage. So it's almost like building a lead wall between yeah. you and the mm. abilities. Yeah. Correct. But then there is, but is there a possibility, and then we'll get into more later, but, or after this, but is it possible to begin to shatter that obstruction from learning Yes. for those students in the classroom, even though maybe once they leave the school walls, it's really not that safe enough an environment, but is it possible for us to create a safe environment for them so that they are able to start some yeah, sort of Yeah, and that's the main thing. That's the main thing with trauma-aware education. There's three main things with trauma-aware education. It's uh, safety or the perceived sense of safety, which we can create at school. So we can create a safe environment at school. So even if the home is unsafe and they're going to an unsafe environment, while they're at school, if they feel safe and if they feel loved and if they feel supported, then we can start to build building blocks for learning. But the first thing is they need to feel safe. That's the absolute first thing. We need to move them out of their survival mode, out of that um, that instinct and into this perceived sense of safety. And then the next one is relationships. So they really need to be building those relationships. So the relationships with their teacher, relationships with the support staff that you have at, at your school, and those things are important because the relationships they didn't get in their early childhood or in their childhood or even at their home to this day 
they can be getting at school. And so that can help them. And then the next thing is emotional regulation. So helping students emotional, emotionally regulate because if students are constantly in the survival mode, in the fight, flight, freeze response, then they're not actually able to emotionally regulate and then able to learn because you need to be emotionally regulated. You need to be calm and, and feel safe and feel supported. And then you can start to learn from that. Does it matter how old someone is when they need to be able to, how do I phrase this? Does it, is there a different impact on feeling safe and being able to start learning at a different age? Let's say that somebody can't find themselves into a safe space yes. until they're So when we're talking about safe spaces, we're talking about what we can create at the school or at the early childhood center or wherever. So if you're looking at schools, mm-hmm. we can create safe space at schools. What happens outside of school that is just out of our control? So what we can control as educators, as assistant right. developers within education is the school itself. So yes, it does make a difference with the age. Obviously, prevention is better than you know a cure later on. So if you're 20 and you've had a terrible experience at home and a terrible experience of school and then you come and you're you're 20 years old well that's a whole different story but if we can prevent it from an early childhood perspective so there's a lot of push in um particularly in Australia for early childhood centers to get things correct and to to make students uh, or their their young ones feel Mm -hmm. safe in kindergartens and things like that because they need to have this so we have like you know parenting programs and things like that because we really need to get that that early childhood part right and then as you go up yes is it gonna is it gonna look different yes it's gonna look different and and how they what you need to work against I suppose is is going to be different because if you get to the point where they're 16 and that's the first time they've ever felt safe and loved and had a had a positive relationship with a teacher perhaps well if if you had that at the age of three that would look a lot different your brain would have developed in, in a different way yes there's still um this is where it comes with, you know, with the epigenetics and the mirror neurons, you can still have those, those things, you can still have that change in your biology at, at the age of 16. But if you're doing it at a young age, you're actually building the building blocks and a good foundation. And that's what we really want to do. But if we're catching students at, at, you know, when they get to the point of, of being teenagers, and they're pruning their brains, then, then it's going to look a lot different because we don't, didn't, don't have the foundation. So we really have to actually teach them emotional regulation because their their instincts are going to be, I need to be safe. I'm in this you know fight, fight, freeze response constantly. So we actually have to teach them emotional regulation at that point, which you have to teach at a younger age as well. But you can actually help them build the building blocks that, that will help them go up into the older ages as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does. And you brought something Mm, up, the term pruning. And is it possible that students, because of the way that they lead their life and they create their own perceived regulation, which may not actually be beneficial regulation, is it possible that they misprune? Like, because I see gardeners around mispruning different kinds of bushes. And I'm just wondering, do they do the same thing with um, their brains? And if you could explain what pruning is and how do we train them to start pruning maybe? Yes, in a positive way. So it's basically building those positive um, relationships and pruning positively. So 
if you look at pruning, so if you have a tree that's already established and you're pruning a tree or you're pruning a bush, right? So mm-hmm. when you're looking at, at young children, they're, they're, they're little bushes, they're little trees, and they're growing and they're growing and they're growing. And so what, what you need to do then is to you know, give them water, give them the, the good soil, the nourishment, and help them to grow. So by the time they're teenagers, they're already a full grown tree. Let's say their brains are developed in this way. And so what happens is pruning. So you basically just prune off the branches to help them grow uh, more healthfully, I suppose, in that way. And so positive pruning, yes, happens with those positive relationships. The more engrossed they can be in positive relationships in their environment, in their school environment, will help them. And obviously externally as well, but we cannot control external. So all we can control is within the school. So the more positive relationships they have in the school, the better pruning there will be. Now, what you also see is that if students at that age, you know, if we're having, you know, what we call at-risk youth, quote unquote, because some people hate that terminology, but if we have these at-risk youth and they're getting together into these groups, into these pods, and they're having these peer relationships that are actually can be quite negative, um, you know, then they are pruning each other's brains in the way to build on uh, negative things and then go into, that's when you can, you can see um, people going into the juvie justice system into criminal behavior as well, because they're kind of peer building into this negative pruning of uh, that this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it, if that makes sense. So we need to have- But there's safety in numbers. Yes, there's safety in numbers. And they feel this, and if those are the only relationships that they're getting, they're going to go towards those relationships. And that's just how how it is. They're going to feel that that is their safety. So if they join a gang, they're safe in this gang. This gang will keep me safe. And that's what they're Mm going to go towards. But if you, what we want to do is put them together into positive, safe relationships that are actually positive and safe, that are pro-social, that are building those um, healthy relationships and show them how that can help them in the future. And just even currently. Is, is some of that altruistic? And I don't mean to sound <laughs> like I'm trying to say, mm. be a naysayer. I'm just thinking, you know, are we looking, it, is it, is, I know that it's all possible, but how probable is that with a lot of our students, because I know that a lot of our students have been so traumatized and they've been so abused in so many ways. And I'm not, and I'm not going to let the system go unscathed either, because I think the system has also, the the educational system has also done its fair share of traumatizing students. The mainstream education system can be traumatizing too. Um, students as well. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. And they can have, they can, they can feel unsafe at school because if they're being bullied and if they're having all, all those types of things as well, um, or, or if they're being, being put into classes where it's like, you didn't succeed in this class because there's something wrong with you, then you're going into this class. And so they, it's just a perception of what they're getting at school. So they can feel unsafe. So is it altruistic? Yes. Yes. How, how realistic is it that we can do this? Well, the main thing is building the relationships. So you need to have small class sizes. You need to be able to have the amount mm-hmm. of support that is needed. And there's something in alternative education. So if we're looking at alternative education, we're, we're, if you're looking at the evaluation of alternative education, there are things, there's something called the contamination mm-hmm. effect. And this is something that Dr. Bruce Perry talks about um, in his book as well. Um, the boy who was raised as a dog, he talks about mm-hmm. that basically when, when, you're making therapies the idea is that you're you're grouping together people with the same um issues into these therapy groups which actually 
exacerbates the issue, doesn't help it because you're, you're, you're basically putting them into these things and then they're understanding, oh, this is normal. Oh, okay, we're all normal. So we have this, this behavior, maybe this deviant behavior that society would, would deem as deviant, but we're putting together. And so we actually understand each other and so we get it. So it's exacerbating the issue. Now, when you're looking at alternative education, we can call this, um, people have called this the contamination effect. So the contamination effect means when you're putting too many students in together that are all having the same proclivity towards a certain behavior, then they're going to exacerbate it. And they're going to be like, yeah, we're all aggressive. Yeah, we're all going to rip apart the school because it's going to be awesome. And then they're going to do that because they think that that's okay because that's normal. But what we need to be doing is grouping. You need to be really, really aware of how you're actually putting in different students within the program because you can't just put them all in together into one area and say, okay, all of you students, let's say with anxiety are gonna to go to one class. All of you students with aggressive behavior are gonna go into one class. You can't actually do that because then that's just going to exacerbate those those issues. It's going to, it's going to make them mm -hmm. even more so. Um, so you need to be really conscious of how you're grouping students together and what supports you have and making sure that you have the supports to help the students before you actually place them um, in the program. So are you also then advocating for possibly interviewing and ap applying for the yes. students so that you know do, exactly yes. what you're getting and you know? That's exactly what we do. Perfect. Yeah. I'm not sure how it works in America, but that's what we it do. Depends. We have to interview. We have like, we have, we have a, a really, really in-depth enrollment process where we have, they, I mean, they think they come three times before they get entered into the program mm. because we have to actually mm -hmm. know what, what, and who we're getting into the program and can we offer the support that they need? Because if we can't offer them the support, then what are we really doing? And if we're going to exacerbate the issues in that program, then that's not gonna really help, you know? And that's what we've seen in some alternative education schools here. And I know that there's alternative education schools in America that have been called the pit stop to prison, right. pit stop to prison on the school to prison mm -hmm. pipeline. And so that's the issue is that if you're looking at alternative education and you're just putting all these students in with all of these different varieties of, of things without the correct support, it's just going to um, fall to the wayside and we can't really be doing so that. So is it, and I agree a hundred percent, but I think that America is so vast and so disparate mm. in so many ways where every state has its own definition of what alternative education is. Every state has its yeah. own different rollout of what it is and what they do with it. And then you get down to the district level and you have so many people who are in alternative ed because they want to be there so that they can be the they can be the martyrs who make the change. And it has less to do with the students. And it's more of a narcissistic. Um, I don't know what you would call it, but it's yeah. it's more of their own campaign for themselves. And then you yeah. have others who just look at the kids as garbage and that the kids, you know, they're, yeah. I'm just dealing with these kids. I mean, da, 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 da. And so yeah. you never know what you're going to be getting from the staff to the administration who very much just want to wash their hands and they don't really understand yeah. how the curriculum needs to work, how the students need to work, how the program yes. needs to work. So it, and we have that here as well. And we have that here as well, which is what led me to my to doing my doctorate in this, because I'm like, what is actually going on here? Why are there so many different types of alternative educations where some of them are really good systems and some of them are, are really poor mm -hmm. systems? And who's, whose agenda is being served here? Because really, we need to be helping the students that we're serving. That, that's what it's all right. about. 
you know, is that actually what we're doing? And we need to actually um, address the issue of complex trauma. We actually need to help these students with complex trauma because that's what we're doing. And so I think that that's the main thing is that understanding that we need to um, get alternative education into a place where we are kind of having like basically with with what I want to do is build the roadmap to alternative education what will it look like in an ideal setting how would we redress trauma in alternative mm -hmm. education what does that even look like what does a trauma aware alternative education setting look like and can we roll that out in Australia and in America and other places like that because we really do need um, to get this right because if we don't then yeah it just becomes a breeding ground for criminal activity which is what we can see in some of and them. also just a, a very, very needy society that kind mm. of feeds on itself and in, in a negative way. Yes. So I, yes. I'm. And it's the whole understanding of alternative education as well, because people have this view that alternative education is um, is bad or is is for the it's for the kids who get right. expelled. It's for all the students who are getting expelled. It's for the young people who are on the on the outs, outskirts of society, and, and we just want to put mm -hmm. them in a place. And so I remember being in an alternative education um, school a couple of years ago, and the uh, the motto, which was not not an official motto, but we, we was constantly the mantra that people would say is, "We're just keeping kids off the street." We're keeping them off the street. And that was like what we were doing. And I was like, surely that's not what we're doing. Surely we've got to be doing more than that. Amazing. I mean, what are we actually doing? If that's all we're doing is keeping kids off the street, then we're not doing a good job. Yeah. We need to actually be helping them. We need to be helping them with their life trajectory. And if you actually are addressing complex trauma, you can be helping these students with their life trajectory because you can be building those relationships and helping the, the helping them with the emotional regulation and, and healthy behaviors and transitioning into the workplace. We can actually be helping with that stuff, but we need to be doing it appropriately. And that's the thing is having an appropriate education for these students. In alternative and it's education. not about us or the system processing those students. It's about teaching those students how to process for themselves. That's correct. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So that they understand, you know, the viable consequences of every action that they're taking and how mm -hmm. to start thinking in a more positive light and what are the what are the opportunities that are out there for them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's just showing the opportunities because a lot of times they've never had those if you if you don't if they're not getting it at home if they're not having their parents you know ha helping them to show them you know these are the options in life you can you can be a you can you can be a teacher you can be a construction worker you can be a hairdresser if, if they don't have those ideas in their head of what they actually can be doing in life then they're not going to know what to do and then they're just going to do what everybody else is doing and what that person is doing what that person is doing then they're going to have those you know peer relationships they're like oh let's um you know just run amok in the streets or whatever it is that they're that they want mm -hmm. to be doing but that's not that's not what they should be doing you know what i mean and so we're going to be helping them I and mean, the main thing is to help them help them actually see what is out there for them and actually give them hope for the future do they have hope that's what we're that's what we're here for we're we're here for to help them to help them have that hope excellent so okay getting back to trauma and the brain because I know we mm. kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole there. <laughs> <laughs> we went on a huge rabbit hole there. But yes, I think it's yes, a necessary did. one. I really do. Um, <laughs> because I think that these are conversations that really need to be happening. And I think people mm. just do not. I think people are frightened of those conversations. But yes, people don't want to talk about alternative education in general. Exactly. Yes, it needs to be happening. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. trauma and the brain 
what what happens to the neurons because we all need neurons and neurons yeah neurons are fascinating and and you know reading the book i'm i never realized just how fascinated i i was by oh. neurons and i i got to quit saying that word but what is the impact of trauma on the neurons and what exactly are neurons why should we be so if we're looking at mirror neurons, so basically when we're looking at developmental psychology and attachment theories and things like that. So when you're looking at mirror neurons, so mirror neurons are basically when you can recognize somebody else's facial mm -hmm. features, right? So if a mom, so basic, 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 back to babies, a mom goes to her baby, goo, goo, gaga, and she's smiling at her baby and the baby goes, goo, 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 back to the mom and they go back and forth and they have this beautiful back and forth, right? Or you stick your tongue out at a baby and the baby sticks the tongue back out at you. You smile at a baby, the baby smiles at you, Right. That's what we're doing with babies. We're always going this back and forth, this back and forth. And this is what we do. I smile, you smile, you know, that kind of thing, right? So, and if you look at babies as well, if you're putting, you know, a couple of babies together, one baby cries, the other baby cries. That's what happens, right? So that those things you kind of are building off, the mirror neurons are building off of each other and they're going back and forth. Now, it's really important for, for babies and for young children to understand facial expressions and and to build up in that because that builds their empathy that builds their capacity to build those relationships with other people so if you're having those correct mirror neurons and you're having that back and forth that back and forth then you're able to build empathy and to connect with other human beings and that's really really important because interpersonal dynamics are very important as you grow up and so if students are having trauma and if if a young child is experiencing trauma What's happening is that they're not having the correct facial expressions that back and forth. So if you're having a mother who is vacant, whose face is completely vacant, and they've done studies on this, if she has a completely vacant face, the baby gets really distressed because the mother is not looking at the baby, engaging with the baby. She's looking away. She's really depressed. Let's say maybe she's depressed. She's looking away, not, not paying attention to the baby. The baby is in distressed mode right? And that's what's happening. And so the baby is, is picking up that mom is distressed. There's something wrong. I need to be distressed as they're constantly in this distressed mode. Now, why this is important is because when you're looking at students who then later go on to school, if they're looking at someone's face and maybe their face is, is just neutral, they can actually see that face as being frustrated or angry. And maybe they're perceiving that as angry with them. And they're saying, oh my gosh, my teacher is just staring out the window. That means my teacher's angry with me. And so they're getting into this really, really unsafe place in their in their brains because they're picking up on these facial expressions. So there's something called hypervigilance where people with trauma have this constant hypervigilance. They're constantly scanning the room for different people's facial expressions. And because they need to understand that, because they need to perceive how they're going to react to that. And their reactions aren't going to be healthy reactions if they haven't had those correct mirror neurons building up when they were young in early childhood. Out of curiosity, because you just from what you just mentioned, all of a sudden, something slapped me aside the head. And I was thinking, how yeah. often are they also gauging social cues from their peers in order to try yeah. to understand that? Is, is, there, is there a gap in that ability? There will be a gap in that ability with, with trauma, yes. So if you're... And, There'll be more gap in the ability if you're looking at neurodiversity, to be honest. So there's going to be there's going to be different gaps 
if you're looking at neurodiversity and, and students with, with those types of difficulties picking up on facial expressions, because if you're looking at the theory of mind, so for example, children with autism, they're not picking up on the perceived understanding of other people's um, realities, right? And then you look at people with, with trauma and students with trauma, and they're picking up on, on their facial expressions as being in a certain way. So they might view their peers um, so if their peer is, let's say, getting frustrated with something, they might view that as, as enraged and being really angry. And so they're going to pick up on that in a different way. Now, the importance of, of peer development in, in adolescence is huge because that is where they're really understanding their place, their group dynamics. So where do they fit in, in a group situation? So it's less about them individually and more about them within a group. And so they're going to be picking up on their peer facial expressions and their peer um, dynamics. And so having those positive pro-social interactions as well in a peer group is really important. And so that's why when you're looking at class placements, you need to make sure that you're having the correct class placements, that you're going to be building those dynamics as well. And and if they're if they're not um, healthy in a positive way, then you're going to have to look at, you know, changing classes and things like that. So you really need to be aware of who you're putting into class and what the different students are are picking up on and how they can be helping each other because everyone's going to have different ideas, but we could be helping to teach them uh, correct views of facial expressions and and, um, and understanding that. So that's emotional regulation. So you have to be teaching students emotional regulation, how to pick up on emotions. And I know that we have that in, we have in our curriculum, social emotional learning curriculum in primary schools here in Australia, where students have to learn that stuff. I know my children have to learn, um, you know, what this, this, this is a sad face. You know, they look at the sad face. What does this face say? Oh, they're sad. Why could they be sad? They could be sad because of this, because of that. And you're helping build those social emotional skills and that social emotional understanding so that students can then have a growth mindset of, of if this is, if you are feeling sad, then what can I be doing to, you know, get out of that sadness and, and to be looking into, into other things um, in that way. Is, so getting on the neuron side, because I agree with you mm. on that. And there are people that say that, well, if we had more recess, if students had more social time during, during the day, that social mm. emotional learning would be approached with a completely different tact. Um, uh-huh. But back on neurons, they die. Is that correct? They kind of fade out or do can they die? That was my understanding that if they're not it's like a plant if they're not watered and if you don't pay attention or use them or something like that, mm. um, that they kind of fritter away. Yeah, but you're constantly using them. I think the I think the only the risk of that, so if you're looking at that in a in a so when I was, did language development in my master's degree, we were looking at um, basically how if you in extreme 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 abuse cases so for example if a if a if a parent locks their child in a closet mm-hmm. for example right away from any human interaction they will die at that point and you will not be able to access uh you know development in that way and so from a language perspective that is when language then dies and people do not learn language if they are not around other human beings and interacting with other human, okay. human beings. Then if you look at 
Um, so, so then later on, if those, if, if the children are then saved, you know, by the police, they come in and then they save them. They actually cannot learn language after there's a critical period hypothesis between the ages of 10 and 13, where if you haven't had, you know, those buildup of neurons back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, where there's a period between 10 and 13, where if, you, if you've surpassed that, if you're then let out of the closet at, let's say, 14 years old, well, you're never going to learn language. You're never going to have that ability because your brain is already developed in that way. And so that's the problem is that if you're having that. Now, those are really, really, really extreme abuse okay. cases, and we don't really often see that. So let's move into so the window. Let's of look at the then. window of tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. ex- if you could explain that, and so we understand what might happen and how can we tell when a student is hitting the lower threshold or the higher threshold of that? Um, Yeah. So with the window of tolerance, basically everyone has a a window of tolerance and some people's window will be bigger and some people's window will be smaller. Usually with students with complex trauma, we find that they come in with quite a small window and when they're out of the window, they go into hyper or hypo arousal which is fight flight response. So they're going to either fight and become aggressive or they're going to flight and run away and leave the classroom. Or they go into the freeze response where they just completely shut down and perhaps dissociate as well. They might sleep in class and things like that. So that would be the freeze response. Now their tolerance, so the window of tolerance is what you can actually stand before you actually get into hyper or hypo arousal. So for example, I might have a bigger window because I've worked in this field for quite a long time. So if a student is yelling at me, I'm going to stay calm and collected and I'm, I'm not going to lose it, you know? Whereas if another student, if they, if, uh, if a student, um, let's say student A is yelling at student B, where student B is going to just completely lose it, go off, go into fight mode and punch student A in the face, let's say something like that. So that would be their window of tolerance. They just got out of the window of tolerance. They might get out of it within 30 seconds or less, mm-hmm. you know? So that's kind of how it is. Now, what we want to do in education is build the window of tolerance, make it bigger, make it wider, teach students how to emotionally regulate themselves. That's where the emotional regulation comes in. So we want to teach students how to emotionally regulate so that they can actually be in the window because when they're in the window, they can learn. When they're out of the window, that's when they're not learning. That's when they're in the survival mode, fight, flight response, or the freeze response. So they're not going to be able to actually effectively learn until they're back in their window. So we want to increase the window, make it bigger, and help them stay in that and window. there are strategies that will enable an instructor to help them find that? Yes. So basically, when you have correct, I mean, I mean, if you just go back to basic classroom management strategies, if you're if you're having the withitness of a teacher, and you're actually understanding the interactions of what's happening, and, and this student is talking to that student, or that student's looking at that student, and you're able to be aware of what's going on, and you're able to manage the classroom in such a way, so that student A isn't then going to be yelling at student B, making them go out of their window and um, you know, have a reaction that's negative. So things like that. So you need to be aware of what's happening and also keeping the students on track, getting them to do their work, getting them to have individual learning plans um, and and help them be, be able to learn and grow at their own level. Because what's really important is making sure that students are in even the zone of proximal development. They need to be in that zone of learning. So if they're having their individual learning plan and they're like, oh yeah, I can do this 
work that you're giving me, they're going to help stay in that zone. If you're giving them something that's way too difficult, they're going to be angry. They're going to be frustrated. They're going to be immediately out of the zone. And then someone's going to look at them funny and they're going to be like, blah, and then they're just going to, you know, lose it. And that's just what's going to happen. So there's a lot of different things that teachers are constantly thinking about with their classroom management, with their emotional regulation, with their trauma-aware strategies. There's a lot. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot that's always constantly going on. You're always juggling when you're an educator in alternative education and working with students with complex trauma. Going back, looking at epigenetics, too, I was surprised to read that we carry trauma, we can carry trauma, correct me if I'm wrong, in our genes. Yes. And so that's what makes it more generational. And then is there a way that we prune that or do we keep it and we just figure out a way that we adapt? What's yeah, so that's a really good question. So, with epigenetics, so epigenetics does say that yes, we hold our experiences within our genes, so our experiences, both positive and negative, are held within our genes, and then we pass that down. So, that's what intergenerational trauma comes um, into. And so, yeah, we are carrying our the generational trauma from, from our parents and from our experiences, and we're passing them down. And so, that's really um, it, it can be quite difficult to 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 grasp that and to be like wow i'm passing my trauma onto my own children as a mother i'm just like you know horrified that that is actually happening but at the same time um there there is hope in that because we can change our environments we know that our environments can actually change our genetics as well so then we have the whole nature versus nurture debate well it's definitely both that's mm-hmm. what epigenetics shows us is that it is actually both so we have two different theories we have differential susceptibility theory which then says your genetic um, factors, uh, how susceptible are they to then picking up on different experiences? And then there's differential impact theory. And what's the actual impact of your environment um, that, that is having on, on your genetics? And so both this whole nature versus nurture, your genes are expressed in this way, and they have the susceptibility to adapt in this way. And then there's the impact of that environment. So when we have positive environments, we are changing that. So if you have, if you look at students who come from intergenerational trauma, so let's just say refugee children, mm-hmm. you know, the obvious war torn countries coming in, they're immigrating, they land, um, and then you give them a really positive environment and you're, you're helping, you know, all of those, those different those different factors, those positive impacts on their environment, then that can help them to change their genes and to express their genes that when they're actually having their children, that they are then already passing on this more positive um, gene pool in that way. So yes, the environment does change for both positive and negative, which gives us a lot of hope because if we actually create positive schooling environments, that will help change the gene expression. And if they have a positive experience there, then that can do yes. the same thing? A hundred percent. If they have a positive experience, of course. So they're having a positive experience at school, then it's helping to change their genetics in that way. What happen- yeah. It will actually change their cells. What happens yeah. if they have, and, and I know this is going to sound petty, what happens if they have a really good experience, but then they have a negative experience with somebody who's who might play into the same environment yeah, so this is where, so if you're looking at resilience theory, so there's protective factors and there's risk okay. factors. So we have the risk factors. So if there's more risk factors, you know, they're having all of these different negative life experiences. So if you even look at ACEs, we should talk about ACEs in a minute. So if we, talk about, if we look at the 
those those risk factors. You know, they're having a negative home environment. They they grew up in a low socioeconomic area. Um, they have friends who are in gangs, things like that. So they're having all of these negative life experiences. Those are the risk factors. So that's what we're talking about: at risk youth. What are you at risk of? Well, you're at, you have all these different risk factors to being um, a certain way or to going into this negative way. Now, if you're looking at positive um, and protective factors, the protective factors are all the positive things that you're giving them. So if you're helping them by giving them, you know, positive learning environments, maybe you have a uh, different societal uh, help, maybe a church group gives them, you know, help with food, help with clothing, help with things like that. Those are all the positive things that are happening um, in their lives as well. And so you can have all of these these positive factors in a student's life and in a young child's life, and those are helping. So if your protective factors outweigh the risk factors, then that will obviously be helpful in changing towards the positive. But if you're having more negative and more risk factors, then that is going to change in that negative way, and it's going to express in that way. Got it. And I believe that, because this happens, where the students will then come to the teacher or the staff member that they find feel is more of a mentor, a positive mentor, and they will ask yeah. them, how do I deal with this? Yeah, absolutely. So, they're always going to have a person. They're always going to have a mentor. And I think a mentor is a really good word for it because it can be a teacher. It can be an admin. It can be a youth mm -hmm. worker or a counselor or whatever you have in, in your school setting. Um, mentors can be a variety of different Any people. Now, we know that the teacher is usually the first point of call and the first point of contact for the students. So that's really important for the teachers to have these positive impacts on on the students. But there's also different varieties of mentors that can be in a school setting as right. well. Right. And I believe that it's anybody who can teach them and model advocacy yeah. Yeah. and teach them how 100%. to do self-advocacy. Because I think there are so many students that are terrified. Yeah because yeah. they don't feel that they have any agency Absolutely. whatsoever. And I mm -hmm, think, mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but I think trauma is where students feel as though they have no agency whatsoever and that they're not worth it. They're not in control, yeah. If you feel like you're not in control of your own life and in, you, you can't control your experiences because all of these external factors are giving you negative life experiences, then you're going to feel that um, yeah, that's right. They don't have an agency. They don't have control over their own lives. If you're giving them these positive schooling experiences and you give them a really safe mm -hmm. environment where they can actually experience choice. And so I think that something is really important is learner choice, having choices, mm -hmm. choices when you come to school, choices in the classroom of do you want to do this today or do you want to do this today? And they're like, oh, I get choices. Yes, you get choices. So if you're in a if you're in a school setting where you can actually give students learning choice, then they have the choice to to make these different um positive experiences of themselves. So for example, if you're saying, today I'm gonna to give you the choice, do you wanna do mindful coloring or do you want to work on um, this curriculum task that's going to help you with your assessment? Well, they might say, oh, today I wanna to do mindful coloring. Okay, that's cool. But then the next day they might choose, no, I wanna actually do that, that, that curriculum task because that's gonna help me with my assessment. And when I pass the assessment, then I'm gonna actually pass that unit. When if I pass that unit, that's gonna go onto my transcript. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so you're actually helping them to make those choices because then they're saying, oh, wow, look at all these things. And then when you tick it off and you show them, you can show them on a chart, you can show them visually. Wow, look at all that you've ticked off. Look at all that you've accomplished and look at everything that's going to go on your transcript. And they're like, wow, you know, I did that. I accomplished something. Yes, yes, you did. And then we can celebrate that, celebrate the student achievement. But you have to give them the choice because some days they're going to come in and they're going to be like, I'm too tired today. I, I can't even, I can't focus on that. Maybe they had a really rough night. 
some of our students are homeless, you know, they maybe slept in a car that, that night. And so you're not going to come in and be like, do this math task, get it done. No, you're not going to do that. You're going to give them the choice. What's your choice today? What can you actually handle today? And if they have that choice and they're saying, no, I'm going to do this today because this is what I can handle. And then tomorrow I'm going to, you know, get more of the curriculum stuff done. Okay, cool. Well, that's good. And you accept that and you show that you accept them either way. And then that's really important is always having that unconditional positive regard where either way, whatever your choices are, I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to be solid. I'm still going to treat you the same because I think you're awesome. And that's really important. And I think it's also <clears throat> extremely important, the fact that they keep showing up. Yeah, 100%. That's a good positive choice. And so you can say, wow, I'm really happy you're here today. Mm -hmm. I know you had a rough night, but you're here and that's awesome. And I'm really happy to see you because that's a choice. That's their choice. They said, I want to come to school today. I don't want to skip school today. I want to come to school and I want to be positive and that's awesome. And they have to be positive in school because that's just what the whole environment is positive. They can't, they have to have that, that choice that, that they come, they learn, they do something, they engage in positive relationships. And that's, that's really key. And it's a place where they feel valued, welcome, wanted, needed, and mm -hmm. heard. Yeah. And I think that exactly. those are the components of, of something that every child needs. Well, I think every person needs that, whether they're a child, an adolescent, or an adult at yeah. any point. So, yeah. Um, yeah. okay. So what do you think are the differences between alternative education students and the students that are in the mainstream? Or do you think that there really are major differences between the students and we just see the ones who are, that were caught in the net? Yeah, I think the main, I think the alternative education students are the ones that don't fit into mainstream for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons, basically. And there's different, and like we said before, there are different ideas of what alternative education actually is. You know, and so the the main thing to, to know is that alternative education is for students that don't fit into mainstream for, for whatever reason, because they could have been bullied. They could have been the bully. They could have been aggressive and, and gotten expelled from mainstream school. They could have disengaged from school due to depression. There's there's a variety of factors for why they're not fitting in, into mainstream school. Um, and so alternative education kind of encompasses all those students. Now, alternative education does tend to attract more students with complex trauma because students with complex trauma tend to not be able to, like we said, um, have those, if you're constantly out of your window of tolerance, you're not gonna be in that zone of learning, which is where teachers in mainstream and the whole mainstream system is like, no, you have to be in the zone. When you come to school, you're in mm -hmm. the zone. But if they're out of the zone, they're not gonna fit into school. And so that's when they come to us in alternative education. And yes, we catch them all and we help them if they're out of that Do you um, mainstream. Do system. you have, mm -hmm your own psychologists for students yes. in your alternative programs, even the, yes. do you have, and if you have alternative programs that are associated with a mainstream school, do those students in the alternative mm -hmm. programs have their own psychologist? So in our, in my experience, yes. So alternative education, schools are funded independently from the Department of Education. 
So we do have some alternative schools that are attached to the department, but those are separate. So the ones that we actually consider alternative schools or care mm-hmm. schools are independently funded. And because we're independently funded, we get um, extra funding for psychologists, for youth workers, um, for more education assistance and things like that. So we do have our own psychologist. So at my school, we'll have a psychologist visit us twice a mm-hmm. week and have appointments with students one-on-one twice a week. And we also have youth workers and youth workers uh, can be trained social workers or counselors, or they can have a diploma in youth work and they also have the ability to counsel students and help them um, with those types of things. So you actually have what I would call something more along the lines of more mental health care outside of the classroom so that the teachers aren't required to take those on as well yes yes teachers are not trained to be mental health workers and so that's something that we really need to be careful of as teachers because we're not trained and if we're opening up a can of worms with students and we don't actually have the training in in cognitive behavioral therapy or other types of therapies mm-hmm. um that will be quite problematic as well especially when you're in a group situation because you're in a classroom of students so you can't be having these one-on-one counseling sessions. Yes, students will be telling you stuff and students will tell you because they trust you and you can build those relationships, which is great. But you should always be referring the students who need extra support and extra help to the youth workers or to the counselors, psychologists and things like that. And then some of the students in alternative education will also have external support um, from the different governmental systems. So they might also have the government mandated uh, psychologist, I might see them outside as well. Okay, because in America, that doesn't always exist. Yeah. And so it comes down to whether or not there is somebody who might be available at some point in time, or you're just going to have to wait until yeah. their schedule opens up. The wait list. Exactly. The wait list. So externally, so we find that external providers, the wait list can be quite long. And then also, if you don't fit the bill, if you're not having extreme mental health concerns, mm-hmm. extreme being, let's say, you know, suicidal ideation or things like that. So if you're not having that, so those students are going to get, you know, first priority. And so the ones that don't have that aren't necessarily, aren't necessarily going to get to the list. So therefore, they're going to be on the wait list for a year, 18 months. And that, that's a huge amount of time for an adolescent. So we have those support systems at the alternative education setting. And I think that's really important. All alternative education sites should have some sort of mental health professional and counselors available at all times for the students, because as we know, they will constantly be out of their window of tolerance and constantly be needing that help, that emotional regulation. And that's when they need to be, you know, leaving class, leaving a group setting, going out, having a chill out, having a safe space. And this is where when you're looking at, you know, what can we do in trauma education, you're having those those places, those chill out zones or having that the chat with the youth worker or things like that, going for a walk outside with a staff member who's available. And so you have to have the appropriate number of staff. And I think that it's really hard because depending on your um, governmental body, like how much funding is available for these mm-hmm. settings is can be quite different. It can be different according to what state you're in. Wow. It sounds as though you have a much more developed and what's the word? Something that flows between each one of your states. 
We don't and actually we do. at this point in time in Australia. No, we don't actually have uh, we we don't have any sort of framework for alternative education, oh. which is why my PhD is focusing mm-hmm. on that. Is focusing on a framework because we don't actually have that across the states. We don't actually have a nationally developed anything. But um, yeah, and it really depends because even in if you're looking at the schools here, just where I'm at in Perth. It's very different. I love the school that I'm at. I really appreciate um, our managing bodies, you know, our CEO and our principal and the way that they are running it because they are thinking about the students at the Mm -hmm. forefront. They are thinking about what do they need. We need a correct staff to student ratio, which our staff to student ratio is one to seven. And that's a pretty wow. good ratio. And if you look at um, even on my site, I, we have about 50 students enrolled and uh, we have 10 staff members at any given time. That's including the cook, the mm-hmm. admin, the educational assistant and things like that. So, yeah, we have we have quite a few staff for that number of students because it's really important to have low, um, like a, a low ratio. You need to have a really good ratio to be able to help students with complex trauma. I mean, if you're looking at daycare systems, I don't know what your daycare system is like, but in early childhood education, if you're looking at babies in a room, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have a one to four ratio. Our, our ratio is automatically one to four. And so we have that. We have the early childhood um, education framework that is nationally governed. And this is what I would like to see in alternative education, where we're actually having a nationally governed ratio to say, you can't open up uh, alternative education setting, unless you're having a correct ratio, a staff to student mm-hmm. ratio, because that is really important. And that's that's the main thing is having the staff available to help those students when because they need it. Because it's all built on relationships in the first place. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. How are you going to co-regulate a student? So when you're looking at the window of tolerance, a lot of it is co-regulation. So if a student is getting out, well, how do they get back into that window? Mm-hmm. That's when you need to co-regulate. And so we understand co-regulation with children. We understand co-regulation with adolescents who are out of their window of tolerance. You need that co-regulation. You need that relationship to then say, okay, let's calm down. Let's do breathing exercises. Let's do what do you need in the moment? You need to go, for, you're, you're in a fight mode. Maybe you need to go for a walk. We need to go for a walk and we need to, you know, I don't know, bang a stick on the ground. I have no idea. Do you know what I mean? Like whatever you, whatever your thing is, we have a boxing bag at my school. So sometimes students need to go mm-hmm. and they need to punch it in the boxing bag. You need to get that out. And then they go, okay, now that you've gotten it out, now that you're, you're, you're all calm and collected. Now we can then get back into the window and go back into class, but you need to have that co-regulation. You can't have co-regulation if you don't have the staff to right. do it. Do you do advocacy groups? What do you mean by advocacy groups? In one program that I had where we worked with very high ACE students, um, mm-hmm. we had advocacy groups. Each staff member had an advocacy group. And there were mm-hmm. probably between six and eight students in that group. Mm-hmm. And we would sit down and we would talk about different issues. People would talk about what's going on in their lives and they would they would share with each other and they would talk to each other. And so sometimes they could be able to give some advice. They knew the kids pretty well. Um, and you were there to sort of make sure that things were kept on the up and up and that they didn't go crazy or start telling somebody, you know what, you need to go mess that kid up. Um, but something different. And so it's about bonding. 
It was about teaching kids how to bond with each other, how to communicate with each other and advocate with each other. Um, we did horseback yeah. riding. We did, uh, at least I did with my kids. We went to movies. We would go out for a lunch. We would do something, um, go for a hike. Right. And so it was something that was different that they wouldn't normally do because they were, most of them were inner city. Um, mm -hmm. and they had never done some of these things and maybe they never will again. Right. And um, are you talking in your advocacy groups that you like had like therapy in, in no. them as well? Or no, just I think going out. No, no therapy. Okay. I think that just yeah. the modeling of advocacy where they could talk to each other and get a different viewpoint yeah. from each other. I yeah. think in a sense that yeah. that was SEL, I think. And yeah. I also think that so, it was also them learning how to speak to each other on a different level. Yeah, yeah. So something that you that you've touched on there is basically when we go back to early childhood and look at play based mm -hmm. learning. So children learn through right. play. Basically, you learn how to interact with other human beings through playing with them as a child. And that's basically really, really important. And so when students who are coming from a complex trauma background have never had this experience of play, perhaps, maybe they never went to a play group, maybe they never had those positive social interactions as a young child, they never had, had the opportunity to go to preschool or things like that, you know? And so you need to actually build on that play and, and have those emotional um, engagements with other other mm -hmm. people. And so peer interactions are really important. So what we do at my school is every afternoon, we have afternoon activities. We call them afternoon activities. It's just a really simple terminology, which just means like, you know, um, your, what, what would you call it? Your, your, extra, your extracurricular activities, basically. So they can have choices. So they have choices. They can choose a games class. They might want to go to the gym. We take them to a different gym. Um, we might go play basketball. Sometimes we go bike riding with them. We might do a yoga class. Um, we might go off and do, uh, yeah, just to park play. Go to the park. Play at the playground. And that's what it's we do. Wonderful. And students love it. You'd think, oh, my goodness, these 15-year-old students aren't going to want to play at a playground. Well, let me tell you, they have a great time playing on the swings <laughs> and going down that big slide. They love it. They absolutely love it. And it actually builds a lot of that, those interactions where you see the, you know, when you look at children on the playground and how they're, how they're learning and interacting with each other, it's really, really important. And so we're giving mm -hmm. the students that opportunity again to have these positive interactions. And so we have those every afternoon. So the first two lessons, so we have our, our classes kind of go by like hour and a half blocks. So the first two blocks, the, you know, the hour and a half, but we have breaks in between. But like the first two will always be the, the curriculum learning and the having, having that. And then the last one, the last hour and a half of the day is always going to be something fun. Now, they do have the option if they really, really want to continue learning, they can sit in class and still do their curriculum. But there's always going to be another option. So there's always going to be something. And so it's through playing games, through going out on external activities where they actually do learn those social interactions. And that is really 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 important and so i think it has to be more play even when you look at happiness just general theories of happiness play mm -hmm. is a big part of that you know even as adults we want to play we want to play we want to do fun things and so having these fun activities for students um allows them to have play allows them to be happy allows them to socially interact and it gives them phenomenal coping skills in life and so i think that we, that is really really important to have that opportunity and it well. shatters all kinds of barriers 100%. I mean, 
And like you said before, it gives them opportunities. You, you took them horseback riding, which they wouldn't necessarily right. have a chance to go horseback riding, which is what we do. We take them mountain biking. So we have mountain bikes at my school. And so we go pick up these mountain bikes from a, from a place where they're, they're kept, they're kept in this, you know, mm -hmm. container. So we pick up the mountain bikes, we take them to the city, we, we go around the river and like have this beautiful, like, you know, lovely mountain biking or, or just, um, you know, biking experience. And as we go up into the hills and we go around the lake and things like that. And so we have these different experiences because they're not, they're not going to go there right. all the time. But if we take them out, they're going to go there and they're going to have a great time. So these students who are like having these experiences have the best time and they love, they love to see, you know, me go out as a deputy principal. You know, I go out mountain biking with them every few weeks. I'll go on the trip as well and I'll take them out. And, you know, I'm, I'm always the one coming in and, you know, having to, to stick to the rules and you got to do this and we got to do this and we got to be scheduled and this and that and the other thing. And then I'm going mountain biking. We're going on these big hills and I'm screaming. <laughs> and, going the hill. oh, my God! and I'm screaming and they love it. I think it's hilarious because they see me in this different light and they're like, wow, this is fun. And we have fun and we laugh together. And it's good because you have to see people in a variety of situations. You see me being serious, Jen in the office, where, you know, I've got to have those conversations with you about about where you're learning and, and where you're going and, and the, the, this and that and the other thing. But I'm also going to have a lot of fun and we're going to have a great time going out. And so I think that's really important. Let me ask you this question. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that trauma then can disrupt the circle where they do not really, they're not really children actually miss out on their childhood because of trauma. Yes. And so yeah. they, in a sense, they age a little faster. And so by allowing them to play, it allows them to start filling in some of those gaps in a sense that they had in the past. Yeah, I think there is a big gap for, for play-based learning because, you know, what we know now about play-based learning, is that it is really important. It is important for those social interactions. And I think that a lot of students um, that do come from complex trauma backgrounds did miss out on the play as a childhood. Because if you think about, you know, if you're looking at the ACEs, so if we look at the 10 ACEs, the 10 ACEs are based, they're adverse childhood experiences. And the adverse childhood experiences are based on emotional abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And if you're having emotional abuse in your childhood, neglect in your childhood, and household dysfunction, your parents don't got time to take you to the playground or take you to these play groups, wiggles and rhymes at the library and, you know, music classes and things mm -hmm. like that. And there's also a money factor involved. Sometimes to go into a preschool program or into a play program, you actually have to have a little bit of, of money. You're paying these fees for these play group programs. And so if you're coming out of extreme poverty, you know, parents don't have that. Parents don't maybe have the access to it. Maybe they don't have a car. Mm -hmm. And so accessing these playgroups are actually um, really difficult as well. And so these students aren't necessarily having those early childhood experiences of having fun and having positive social interactions. And then if you look at even when you go into the schooling system in primary school, if students are out of their window of tolerance and they're looking at a student's face as being angry with them. And so let's say little Billy hits Johnny where little Billy is going to get expelled. Right. Right. And so if little Billy got expelled from being on the playground, he's going to associate the playground as negative. It's bad. And so every time I go to the playground, I get really frustrated and angry and I hit little Johnny, you know, and so that's going to be a negative experience. So then when you actually get them then coming into alternative education and you're like, we're going to have these positive play based experiences, you can actually redress a lot of that trauma. You know, you go back and you say, no, play is fun. We're going to we're going to learn to emotionally regulate. I can see that you're getting frustrated with 
you know, someone on the slide, well, how are we going to do that? Let's have it. Let's, you know, do our deep breathing. Let's, let's take a chill. Let's go for a walk and then come back after because students are going to get frustrated in basketball all the time. We, have, we play basketball and we go to the park and we play basketball and you can see students having this frustration, this anger because they, you know, get competitive and they have this thing, but they have to actually learn to cope with mm -hmm. that. And so you're teaching them those emotional regulation skills and how to cope and how to actually manage their behavior in those environments. And that's, that's really important. Right, they don't want to foul. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so they're going to, th those types of things are going to come up and they're going to, they're going to get frustrated and get competitive, but how do they cope with that? How do they actually manage those situations? And I think that when, you know, little Billy was five years old in the playground hitting Johnny, well, he couldn't actually manage that. He didn't actually know how to regulate his emotions. But as he gets older, he's 15, 16 years old, he can actually learn to regulate. And then he has the relationship, you know, with the teacher or with the education assistant who's who's there with them. And then they can help co-regulate them and help them to manage those emotions. What about drug use? And the reason why I bring that up is because I would think okay. that students of trauma would have a higher rate of drug abuse. Yes. But yes. the the effect of drugs on the brain are probably very similar to trauma. Because... So I'm not a drug expert, but yes, we do know that people basically use drugs they have addictions when they have abuse mm -hmm. and when they have you know high ACE scores or, or trauma so trauma does lead to addiction and yes we, we are finding that in in different um if you look at people who do who are the the drug experts they will tell you that yes trauma abuse will lead to drug use that is what happens now the actual uh, way that drugs affect their brains like trauma, I can't even speak to that. I'm not sure about that, but I do know that they will want to definitely, you'll want to get, you you want to do drugs to, to then make yourself feel better. It's like that escape. Mm -hmm. If you want to escape from your trauma, you're going to want to go to, go, go to drugs and, and escape from it. And a lot of times we find that, you know, students might have, these types of addictions because their parents have these addictions and their grandparents have these addictions and everyone's having these addictions. And so they're constantly having, you know, this cycle of drug use and, and abuse and addiction because it's something that they, that they have grown up around as well. And it's in their genetic material thusly. Yes, they would be, they would have that susceptibility to be addicted. And that's the thing. And so when you find that, so even from a personal perspective, so I had parents who were drug users and I grew up around, you know, I have a quite high ACE score. And so when you have, you know, parents who, who did that and so they have these addictive personalities, you are then going to have an addictive personality. But what are you going to be addicted to? So for me, it was always food. I always filled that void with food. That's what I was addicted to. And so everybody has something that maybe they're going to have that, that vice in mm -hmm. their life. What are they going to, what are they going to have to fill that void? What are they going to do to help them to, to feel that, you know, if they feel sad or if they feel depressed about something, what are they going to go towards? And so students do often go towards drugs because that's where they're from. If that's their background, then they're going to go into that and they're going to have, that's just their, their norm. There's society and their peers and their parents and everyone's kind of using drugs or, or drinking alcohol. And so they kind of go down that path, but they don't necessarily have to go down that path. They can, you know, fill fill the void with something else and so what we want to do is fill the void with something positive with education let's get addicted to education let's get addicted to play wouldn't it be great to be addicted to bike riding oh that'd be fun 
know? Addicted to exercise, the good endorphins. But within yeah. moderate, I mean, you need to be moderate, I think. Yes, I'll... of course you have to be moderate. We don't want addictions to anything, <laughs> of course, of course. But if you, <laughs> but if you look at people with with certain, you know, propensities towards yes. being addicted, you can have different different types of things. Mm-hmm. Yes, so there are people, but I mean, people do generally go. We do want to have moderation, but yes, being addicted to exercise would probably be the best way to. Uh, to, to be if you're going to be addicted to anything. But yeah. I agree. I agree. Mm. Wow. I think we covered an incredible amount today. I think so. You are I do think so. just a vast resource. Am you I? <laughs> you're fin- oh, it's fantastic. And I want to thank you for joining us today and um, just giving us all this wonderful information and you and I talked about you coming back and talking to us later about implementation of trauma aware in the classroom. Am I correct? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We can talk about the implementation about trauma aware strategies within a classroom setting and within a whole system setting as well, because that's basically where my research is and where my passion is within an alternative education setting. What does it actually look like? We touched a little bit on that today about what happens at, at my site, but we can expand on that and I can kind of, you know, speak to that a bit more about how to implement trauma aware strategies. Thank you. Thank you so much. No worries. And Thanks for having me. It's oh, been great. Welcome. And for all of our listeners, I will be right back. Holy cow, that was a lot of information. And believe it or not, we covered chapter three of the book, Trauma Aware Education, and we didn't even cover the entire chapter. It's full of information on the brain and neurons and just everything. And you can buy it on Amazon. I have the link down below. But if you think about how trauma stays in your DNA, how it's down to the cellular level of our students, how it's down into the cellular level of ourselves, that's pretty amazing. And so we got to keep that in mind. And Jennifer has given us a lot to work with as far as information that we can now maybe use. So when she returns next week, she's going to be talking to us about strategies and implementing all kinds of trauma-aware strategies in the classroom and in our programs in schools. So be sure that you check that one out as well. And until then, Be safe, be well, and be a great teacher.